Hi, I'm Nikki Schrera and you're listening to The Jazz Session, the original jazz interview podcast. Basic hip. This is episode 597 for the 27th of April 2022. Nikki Isles is a pianist, a professor of jazz at the Royal Academy of Music and the Guildhall School of Music and Drama in London, and a composer. In some ways, I think of her as a British jazz gem, but that would do a disservice to the fact that she's much loved and known in other jazz communities dotted around the globe. Her musical work in the UK has seen her become a leading figure in the British jazz tradition. She's known for her collaborations with vocalists Norma Winston and Tina May, and has recently expanded her reputation as leader of the Nikki Isles Jazz Orchestra. She's worked with the Frankfurt Radio Big Band, the WDR Big Band, and led several groups, including the Printmakers, comprising a who's who of British jazz. Most recently, she was awarded a British Empire Medal for Services to Music and an Ivan Novello Jazz Ensemble Composition Prize for her work, The Caged Bird. We chat about her foray into large ensemble writing, her take on British jazz identity, motherhood, and so much more. Here is our conversation. Hi, welcome to the Jazz Session and happy Mother's Day. Thank you very much. And it's lovely to be here from London. It's such a privilege to have you here. And I'm glad you mentioned that you are in London so that folks are saying, is Nikki coming to us from the future and May? Because, of course, Mother's Day hits at different dates. Of course. Different countries. But today we're going full British and embracing Mother's Day being on in March. And uh, I hope you've had a lovely day. Yep, we've been out uh, antique shopping. <laughs> Very British. Bought an old Japanese. Yeah, but exactly. Well, like you see, our, my um, house is, I love French furniture and painting it and all this stuff. So we have a, a great place up the road. So that's been, a, you know, one of our favourite things to go and do. So, yeah, so far, so good. Oh, well, that's lovely. Let us know if you ever pop up on something like Antique Roads Show or something like that. <laughs> yeah. We actually did have a thing at Bonhams. I don't know if this is interesting, but my other half... Pete, um, his his parents were um, they they worked at the Queen's uh, Church, uh, St Martin's in the Fields in London, 
And when they left, they were given Admiral Nelson's uh, choir music, one of the original copies um, from obviously from the his uh, funeral. And uh, we we just sent it to Bonhams, which is a famous uh, London auction house, and uh, it just made over a thousand pounds last week. It's been sat on a cupboard for about fifteen years, so that was quite exciting. And he also bought two first editions of Beethoven sonatas that made two and a half thousand pounds. <laughs> And he bought them for twenty pounds. So, um, well, there you go. <laughs> the thrill of antiquing with Nikki Isles. That's an I know, yeah. The name uh, and Pete <laughs> Churchill. That's the name of this episode. But I will say that you know, if there are folks who are not lucky enough to be familiar with your music, but they're lovers of antiquing, you've just roped them in. So, job well done. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They'll be like, right, this is about antiques, so I'm going to lean in. But we're going to actually move away from antiques and on to jazz. For folks who don't know about you, I would have told them a bit about you in the prelude to this episode. I think of you as a sort of stalwart of the British jazz scene, certainly, and beyond, in all fairness, but definitely beyond. Uh, and I look at the people that you've kept musical company with, past and present, uh, Norma Winston, James Madron, Mark Lockhart, Mike Walker, your partner in life and antiquing, Pete Churchill, and the composers that you've also covered in your recordings, John Taylor, Kenny Wheeler will say he's half Canadian, half British. Depends which side of the pond you are that you claim him as your own. And also just last night, in fact, I was lucky enough to catch some of it online. You organised the most tremendous, vibrant performance at Pizza Express Jazz for another musical collaborator of yours, the vocalist, wonderful vocalist, Tina May. And you had Norma Winston there. You had your... your daughter Immy Churchill there Ian Shaw popped up it was it was fantastic so congratulations on that and what a wonderful showing and thing to be able to do all together what are your thoughts on the British jazz scene and I guess British identity in jazz if you think such a thing exists well, I think I think it does exist. I mean, we've all been um, influenced by um, America. Well, most of us um, American jazz, of course, and uh, I know I have. Um, but I think there's something something very British. You know, you think of people like Django Bates, um, Ian Ballamy. There's, um, you know, we've we've also liked the like the Europeans, the Scandinavians, have been very much influenced by our own folk music. Um, classical music. I mean, I love lots of early 20th century British music, you know, John Ireland, Delius, um, Vaughan Williams, which is, you know, very much about our country. Um, and it was, you know, written around First and Second World War time. So it's a longing for home, I suppose. But it, there's something, I don't know, that <laughs> hits you when you've, you know, driven through the hills up in Yorkshire. And uh, I know some, a lot of that is in my music as well, as, as well as loving Thad Jones and Bill Evans and uh, Eric Dolphy and all those, Jerry Allen, all those people. But it's, um, yeah, I mean, and also the brass band culture of uh, Britain. Um, I know Manfred Eicher was talking, we had him from ECM Records, came for the anniversary a couple of years ago and um, of ECM Records, and he talked about Kenny Kenny's band um, with all those great British musicians, saying there's something very particular about the, the larger ensemble sound that's um, very British. And, you know, I'd often thought it was maybe from the brass band, from the collieries and the mining communities. There's a wonderful tradition here and a big sort of 
beautiful bloom of sound <laughs> in the brass players. And I, I think um, Kenny's band had a very particular sound, which again has influenced us all. So those kind of things from our country. And, and also the sense of humour, sort of dry sense of humour, um, which British, and also I, I always find that with Canadians, there's a kind of, <laughs> there's a similar, the Canadian musicians I've worked with, there's a similar sort of sense of humour, dry sense of humour. Well, I love that you bring up Kenny Wheeler because if we sort of go from there into your music, another string to your bow, so to speak, that I've become aware of recently, although it's been something that has obviously been on your mind and in development for many, many years, has been your jazz orchestra, which you debuted in 2018 at the London Jazz Festival. Uh, And I will urge folks to go and find, there's a really wonderful profile that came out on you Hi, Pete. <laughs> Pete has entered the room. Not the Zoom chat, but the room. He's, he's um, yeah, lighting the fire. <laughs> I love it. It's so British. This is just great. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's the call. <laughs> the wonderful uh, writer, arts writer, John Forden, profiled you recently for London Jazz News. And it was so wonderful because although, as I said, I was aware of what you were up to, There was so much detail in that piece and it also charted back to how your jazz orchestra came to be and your thoughts on writing for large ensemble. And I'm sure that somebody like Kenny Wheeler uh, has influenced that greatly, whether it's the music or whether it's just your outlook on creating for such a big group. And I will say there was a tour for this group that was scheduled pre-COVID and it, it, you must, I know you were gutted and I was gutted on your behalf that COVID reared its ugly head and got in the way. I am hopeful that you have now performed with the group post-COVID-ish, if we're post-COVID, touch wood. And uh, you've also been working with other big bands, Frankfurt, WDR. So could you tell us about your foray into large ensemble writing and conducting and what you love about it? Well, I've, I've always loved being in larger ensembles. It's the community thing, isn't it? Even from a kid, you know, going on tours with um, all your friends <laughs> on the band bus, all that kind of thing. And I think I've always been really interested in bringing people together, um, whether it's at colleges, you know, bands. I've always wanted to do the, the ensemble teaching and write music for people. But I, I, over the years, I was, I've, I've been commissioned to write um, music for large ensembles, a national youth jazz orchestra. Tim Garland, who's a fantastic tenor player, I worked with Chick Career, who's here, he commissioned me. Um, so I've been kind of um, delving into large ensembles, having played a lot in them, um, both on alto actually and piano. Um, but it was um, it was Kim McCarr at the Vortex who finally said, right, come on, get, get your own group together. Um, and of course it's a financial suicide, isn't it? But, um, but the best feeling, uh, just having your music um, well, technicolor in a way, isn't it? And your somebody said, I can hear your all your imagination, you know, coming out in a large horses and large um, forms. So I, I think I've always really enjoyed the narrative, like like a solo, I suppose, uh, as an improviser, um, having the opportunity to really develop something um, and and actually write it down, but also keep that balance between the improvisers and and the written music good, you know. So so. Uh, Often the, the players can take it elsewhere, can't it? And I think people like Maria and Thad Jones do that fantastically. Um, and you can't always work with the people you you know that you know very well. I mean, my my first pieces were commissioned, so I had to write for the brief and you know 
trying to write them something challenging, but also something very doable. And uh, but it, it's been great this last um, over lockdown. I, I had a detached retina, which is a bit of a shock. <laughs> um, so I had this funny gas bubble in my eye, and I had to be still for a month and you know cancel everything and. And actually, it was a, finally a time to really breathe. And um, I bought loads of scores, some Bob Brookmeyer scores. Um, got into I had a great big magnifying glass at the piano here. Um, in that those dark months, and actually really got back back into doing some studying. I, I, I sort of thought I've done a lot of teaching online, and I was feeling a bit well, really missing playing like everybody, and realizing that balance of my teaching and. Um, playing is a fine one and without the playing I was really feeling like giving out so much and really feeling <laughs> nothing going back in so um, I had a lesson with Vince Mendoza which was really inspiring and I've got some funding to have some more um, and I started writing you know writing more freely and just not necessarily for um, you know a set of people or a commission but well hopefully my band and I also uh, there was a, a couple of um, the national, no, the International Society of Jazz Composers Arrangers, who I'm a member of, they had a, a COVID um, relief fund, so a call for scores, and then then they'd commission you if you got if you won or you know, so I won one of the first commissions, which was great, and that really got me back into writing and, and music because it was very painful, wasn't it, for so many people, all that work cancelled and then nothing, you know, not knowing when we were going to get back to it, but um, that piece, the Cage Bird, kind of. I, I went. I think I went to it every day, and uh, it was fantastic therapy in a way. And um, but then somebody, the Umo Orchestra, must have heard something, or um, and I think because they couldn't probably some of these bands couldn't uh, bring American musicians over. They were looking a little bit further afield in Europe. Um, so the Umo commissioned me. I'm going in September, and then, uh, funnily enough, the NDR. They had a fantastic scheme, which should have been happening a few years ago, really, with all these bands, where um, they had a call for scores, you know, anybody could write. And then it went through a process of um, the conductor would, you know, sieve out the ones maybe that weren't quite ready. And then, then you actually, the ones that got through, you got to play with the band, which is great. And then the band voted. And if that went well, you got a week. So. I've just went just before Christmas for a week and um, I'm going back in a couple of weeks and they're talking about commissioning next year and so it's been and then Frankfurt and Prague and so it's it, it's suddenly a new <laughs> a new lease of life has, has opened up and it's been really um it's really got the juices flowing as well you know thinking and meeting new musicians and and actually going and directing I mean I've, I've obviously I'm normally playing in the band but um it's been a new thing and I'm going to have some, I mean, I can connect counting time and all this stuff and bring people in, but just to develop some conducting skills and, uh, and also stand up there to show other women <laughs> that it can be done, you know, because there's, there's very few of us, aren't there?
I was kind of surprised to learn about you in John's article. I think he said something, obviously you can read and write music and you've been composing for decades plus and you teach and you lecture. So you're a consummate musician. Uh, but that your your sort of foray into large ensemble writing was not like that you studied back in the day that context. And I just think it must be unbelievably validating to have all these commissions pique people's interests and for them to open up. I'm so excited for you hearing you talk about all the prospects that have been recent and that are still to come. Uh, it's opened up this whole world to you. How fabulous. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's fantastic. And, you know, and I've, I've still, there's lots I want to do, you know, there's parts of, you know, I need to de develop other parts of world music and learning all that. But I've, I've, they, they have some good grants over here in, in uh, develop your creative practice, which is fantastic, you know. So lots of people applied and bits of money have, you know, that, well, actually a lot of money has been sent out to musicians and artists. So, you know, at every level, I'm, near, I'm, I'm nearly 60. So, you know, I'm feeling like, crap, I'm, I'm ready for the next bit, you know, and it's, that's really fantastic. You know, even if it's for a short, I don't know, I'm, I'm hoping it's, um, I feel there's lots, you know, I've been playing in big bands and large ensembles from, you know, my early 20s. So I, in a way, I, I, I sort of say I'm self-taught. I'm self-taught in that I haven't had a composition lesson, but I've sat in so many bands and taken note. You know, and I think that's that's the thing when when you're in there and you're thinking, oh, that's a nice sound. I'm, uh, I love that that combination of instruments or uh, um, that groove or how that how somebody's developed that kind of the theme and um, where it's moved on. Um, you are learning, aren't you? You are studying in a way, but you're in inside it. So that I, I've sort of told myself, well, that's that's actually been a good, fantastic learning experience, you know, and and with people like Mike Gibbs and kenny and you know and i think that opportunity to play earlier you know there's some of those found you know those fundamental times when you're quite young can really plant a seed i think for me um with this orchestra that i was in in my late 20s we had a very um enlightened jazz northwest uh, officer who was i think he was working with peter erskine at the time managing him and doing the stuff over in europe um he was a trombone player at my age and uh he had the job as the the local jazz you know guy but he he formed this orchestra called uh, it was a pool of musicians and uh, we worked with anthony braxton you know edward Vesseler, um bobby privet um vince and you know at 28 i mean it was just mind-blowing you know and uh it, it was yeah and like all large ensembles some with braxton it was hair dryers with opera singers and <laughs> all sorts of forces and Kenny more the traditional, you know, but Kenny's great music, but more traditional big band. Vince was a, a group with four French horns, you know, so all sorts of things at that age. I mean, can't imagine how, uh, you know, how influential that was. So I think, you know, I have learned a lot there, but I, I, I want to develop, you know, at, at my age. Of course, we everybody wants to You get to a, a stage where you think I need to learn some new things so I'm, I'm feel quite excited about it and was there anything that you picked up on uh when you had this lesson with vince mendoza recently that felt uh a revelationary might be too strong a word but was there anything that he imparted to you that felt like it was a real sort of key unlocking moment for you or something that he said that you thought oh that's really great advice want to carry that with me want to impart that to students and others 
Well, lots. Of, I mean, sometimes he was confirm. He was really encouraging, like confirming because I thought it was going to be all negative. You know, like you need to sort out this and this. But actually, he was very, you know, nice about what I've written. And uh, um, but in some ways, he it was the cage bird. I remember him saying, "I want more bird." <laughs> so. I mean, I do write for woodwinds, you know, I've been a classical player so, when I started out. So I've always got that sound. That's what, what I, I suppose it's a jazz orchestra with all the colours and that. So that thing of not getting too bogged down in the mechanics of things, but thinking of the more inspirational and the vision, you know, the uh, image, imagery in a way. And just things about rhythm. Because, again, when you're trying to, he actually said an interesting thing is about don't don't write for the musicians because I, I always think I'm writing for my friends. I know what they do so I can really, you know, like Ellington or something. But he was saying, well, sometimes just write what you want to write and they'll come to you, which I thought that was fantastic. Um, but no, he was he was great. And, uh, you know, it just made me really think and I went back and changed some things and. Uh, so I think we all need that, don't we? <laughs> we do, but I mean, again... Sounding board. We all need a sounding board, and I'm often gobsmacked at the number of musicians, and particularly young musicians, pe people who are either learning or dipping their feet into a new aspect of being a musician, whether it's composing or lyric writing or arranging. How many yeah. musicians don't actually seek it out? And you hear the results and you often think, oh, I wish they'd sort out a sounding board whether it's mm. recording and you send one of the mixes or one of the rough tracks to a mentor or an old teacher or current teacher yeah. or a peer uh mm. or whether when you're actually in process and you're composing or arranging something and you bounce it by somebody who you know maybe plays a different instrument to you I, again i i really think it is um an unsung a virtue that you clearly embody so it's it's really encouraging and inspiring to hear you say that uh, and it goes back into what so many jazz musicians on this podcast have said which is that it's about the process mm. and that's a lifelong yeah. thing regardless of age stage yeah I mean and it's you know you're not going to reach like it's in a way it's not a career is it it's, it's a vocation and you're not you're not gonna say well I've I've arrived <laughs> in a way, are you? Because there's always so much more and that's that's fantastic. Yeah, and and we're as listeners and as fans and admirers of your music, Nikki, we benefit from you being so integrated and invested in the process because now we get to hear all this new music from you and mm. we get to hear and see you, like, develop. Yeah. It's a privilege for us. But, I mean, on the, on the topic of birds... Uh, not just your work, but of course, Maria Schneider is a huge and well-known bird lover and lots of birds in her in her works. And you did touch on earlier the idea of visibility in jazz, whether it is as a female instrumentalist, which is probably what I think of you as first, or whether it's a female large ensemble conductor, composer, arranger. And that pool is getting bigger thanks to people like you, people like Miho Azama, uh, and thanks to obviously, you know, Maria carrying on doing what she does. What are your thoughts on visibility in jazz and how aware are you of it, especially because you do teach and so you are often responsible for nurturing other women in jazz? 
well it's it's very it's very important to see women uh out there um leading bands um among being amongst you know big bands being that i mean it's it, that's still a big pro problem there but yeah we've got i mean I, I look back and it's funny because of all the awareness now i mean i was in a incredibly obviously we 40 years ago, it, it was incredibly male dominated. But I, it's funny, I always did work with females, I mean, singers, but some instrumentalists. But, I, um, but it wasn't so until the more awareness came up that because I always seemed to work with nice guys, you know, and I didn't really have any, everybody was really encouraging, didn't have any, well, things I, at the time I thought were problems. Maybe I wasn't booked on certain things, but it never worried me. I just kind of got on and found my people. And I wasn't really a gigster, like going out playing hundreds of gigs. I was kind of hooked up with people to write new music, and um, and they were always mixed bands. So that was. But then I think about the people that have inspired me: Norma, Jerry Allen, Joanne Brackeen, um, Rini. You know, you know, just uh, you know, these people that have had children <laughs> for a start. Uh, you know, they they uh, they're totally committed to their music um you've got a voice a really uh, individual voices they're dignified with the way they portray themselves you know that kind of thing which is they're themselves um very much and uh, you know it's, and you you sort of you know you think about they, they're sort of uh, even on their album covers it's uh, you get a sense of what their music is about just by the way they put because those things are so big now aren't they the way you your photos and everything and it's uh oh, i hate it all but uh, i don't know <laughs> especially as you get older but um but those people they just you know i just looked at them and thought yeah i'd like to be like that you know do the music i love and uh and you can see what the music's about by the way you portray yourself in the media and the way you you talk so it's uh, very much about the music so it is important yeah it is and uh there are so many more young Females coming through. The problem starts, I think, a bit later when the old time clock comes and people have to, well, and thinking about the future of having music as a what you're doing in your life, you know, um, so when sometimes women it's too hard to carry on or or they have a break. But there are there are some incredible young musicians coming through and they're just burning. I mean, they just. <laughs> I mean, it took took me longer. I mean, I was a I'm a slow burner, but there wasn't. I suppose it's in the time I was coming up. You know, there wasn't all this pressure to make albums really quickly, and I've always sort of taken my time and just done it when when I felt it was right. But uh, different kind of pressures now. But but it's it's much better, and it, but it still needs you know. And most of the time, I think think I said in that article, a lot of the time it's um, giving women or or out of your you know we all have our friends that we work with and it's so easy just to keep booking your friends and uh, nothing changes but i think giving other musicians an opportunity and i think that some of the things i've done are an opportunity to come up and then you hop in <laughs> and uh, but you need that opportunity so sometimes when there's an opportunity in a band maybe you shouldn't book your guy friend you should try a woman that you've been seeing doing really well and give somebody an opportunity and i think sometimes that that really helps and then uh and then you get brought into different scenes and the whole thing blossoms and you get a more diverse 
profile of musician and benefits everybody, doesn't it? You're segueing this interview for me beautifully, Nikki. I don't have to do any work. But on the topic both of performing with other women and giving other women or other young musicians a chance... You are a dream to sing with, and I know that firsthand because you were kind enough to say yes to me when I asked if I could uh, do a gig with you in London, and it it is a highlight of my adventure thus far, without a doubt. The, The process, no, really, the process from rehearsing to performing, it was just a joy. And you mentioned... We mentioned Tina May, the wonderful vocalist, earlier, and you just mentioned Norma, and that's your very, very dear friend and musical colleague, Norma Winston. Both tremendous vocalists, two people I hold in incredibly high regard as well. Can you tell us about your long-standing collaboration with Norma, both in terms of performance um, and recording, but also as co-writer? Because there are there are a number of works where you've written the music and Norma has written the lyrics. Yeah. Well, Norma was, I mean, I was 18, no, 17 when I met Norma on a jazz course. And uh, she was, at that time, she'd just recorded all the azimuth, uh, some of the azimuth records with Kenny Wheeler and John Taylor. And again, she was a heroine, you know, I mean, I just loved her. She has a wonderful, she she has a wonderful thing where she's not afraid to show um, fragility, but she's incredibly strong and daring and great fun and uh amazing amazing to sing with and uh you know i think uh, and she's just a fantastic person as well but so i met her on that course and i was only 17 and she, she must have been only in maybe in her 30s or something but over the years you know it's i will say to my students dream of playing with somebody you know dream dream high i mean obviously it doesn't happen sometimes but you know when you're kind of listening to all of their music um and you're learning the tunes they they've learned again an opportunity came up uh, it was a women's uh, jazz festival. We said we don't want all women on. The- <laughs> we said okay, we have a mixed band because we didn't know a, a, a drummer or bass player that played Kenny's music. You know, so we had to get the right people for the job. And in Chard, this was in Somerset, and uh, we got together. And of course, I knew all the tunes because I'd listened to them all and transcribed them. And so it felt really natural and lovely. And uh, I mean, it's, obviously, it's. You can't follow John Taylor, but um, Norma's very generous like that. Um, you know, she works with so many people around the world and uh, is just spontaneous with whatever's happening, you know. So it's, um, and that's carried on for years. I, I um, then formed a band called The Printmakers. Um, and it's, again, we were talking about mixed bands. I like the mixed age thing as well. So my drummer, James Madrum, who's a wonderful drummer, was about 22 or 3 when we first joined. I met him at the Royal Academy of Music when I was doing a project of my music, and he was he was just amazing. So he was in it, and then Norma was in her seventies then, um, and then the, the three of us in the um, um, amazing guitarist Mike Walker, same age as me, who I'd grown up with, and Mark Lockhart, a wonderful um, saxophone player, and Steve Watts, who played with Django Bates. So it's and it, and it's a band. It's not all original music, but it's um, I think we all love songs. So, you know, one one time we can do something very straight ahead standard in a more free way. We can do a Steve Swallow country and western tune. Um, we can do Foxy Trot or something we've written or Joni Mitchell's song or, uh, you know, it's it's just a, a kind of uh, a band where we bring 
all the things we love together and and it I've, and i think because of that it's lasted for years i mean we're still we've had obviously a bit of a break but uh, i've got the first gig in for keep us going um but it's a, a great band of friends as well you know and um and it's always something always happens on the gigs you know it's very open it's definitely one of my favorite uh vehicles of yours and i've seen the printmakers live and will definitely play some of the printmakers music tina well tina i've um she's my age i mean tina uh, is one of the again greatest jazz singers from our country and she she she's really interesting because she didn't she she was a language student so she's fluent in french and uh studied French and one of her years in her university degree was to study at the Sorbonne in Paris. So she just learned, she was just singing in clubs in the evening, learning with Kenny Clark and all the, um, all the Americans. So she did the real, real deal of, you know, studying on the stand. And she's, she's unbelievable singer, um, doesn't get enough. I mean, everybody knows she's really good, but um, she's so busy. She has been so busy that she's, um, you know, other people are, get the awards, but she's uh, she's one, definitely one of the best. And again, like Norma, she's a great improviser um, and uh, has great rhythm. Actually, her time is incredible. And I, I remember Winter Marcellus hearing at um, Royal Festival Hall and wanting her to go out to New York. He said it was the best singing he'd heard. And um, and her album with Ray Bryant, she set all the Ray Bryant um, and Enrico Perinonzi the um, great Italian um, pianist. She did a lovely album with Tony Coe, um, our great clarinetist tenor player. Um, that was not many years ago, actually, but it's a really wonderful album with her lyrics. So she's a bit of an unsung hero, but outstanding singer and a great, again, great friend. And we, I suppose we were both mums coming up together, you know, taking the kids on the gigs in buggies. And um, so it had that, our connection was that too. Maybe September, I'll love again Maybe a rainbow will catch me there This little girl lost will find her way once more Just like before of a willow where love was born a face on a pillow in a
Hello, a quick note from me, Nikki, to tell you how you can best support the jazz session if that's something that tickles your fancy. This podcast is made possible thanks to the support of listeners who are so enthused by these conversations that they head over to Patreon to join the Jazz Session's Patreon page. They become patrons. If you go to thejazzsession.com slash join, that's thejazzsession.com slash join, it will link you to the Patreon page and you'll be able to find out more about how you can become a member for as little as $5 per month today. So please do head over to that link if that sounds interesting and enticing to you. There are all sorts of perks to be had and there are only two tiers of membership, $5 a month or $10 a month take your pick. The other way that you can support the podcast is by rating or reviewing the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This takes a matter of seconds, rating it to be specific, and it helps with the podcast's visibility on web pages, in searches. It helps other folks who might be interested in these conversations find the podcast. Really important and invaluable in the world of podcasting. The other way you can support this show is by tweeting, Facebooking or Instagramming about the show at large or about specific episodes that you know you really enjoy so please do feel free to give the show a shout out and if you tag the jazz session on any of those social media platforms I'll be sure to repost your wonderful praise and gladly so so thank you for listening and for any support that you may show the podcast now or in the near future now back to my conversation with Nikki. I certainly come away from, you know, a conversation like this and I've got all these names of people that are new to me and that I have a great joy in discovering and listening to and developing a better sense of familiarity with. So it's great because you mentioned them all. I mean, whether it's, you know, you saying that Tina is unsung and I think very often jazz vocalists know other jazz vocalists, even those who fly under the radar. But, you know, I've forgotten about Tony Coe. Well, I mean, Mark Lockhart, uh, you know, I'm aware of, uh, you know, I have been for ages. But, you know, it's great to revisit um, people and, and yeah, new people. There's so many great people and composers. Like- Mark, someone like Mark Lockhart, he, he's an interesting one because if you look at his back catalogue, um, he's worked with June Tabor, who's an amazing folk singer of England, you know. <laughs> so Where is June? Is she singing? Because one of my favourite albums that she put out not that long ago, maybe seven years ago now, with, with Hugh Warren, and I forget who else was on it, an ECM yeah. album. Uh, it's uh, Ian Bellamy. The most phenomenal yeah. album, and I became absolutely obsessed with June and her back catalogue when I lived in London. Uh, and I remember going into some of her music with Anita Wardell, another great singer, Aussie, UK singer. Uh, so is, she, is June still singing? Yeah, she's, yeah, yeah. No, she's incredibly powerful. Well, you know, emotionally and uh, yeah, mm. British um, folk singing. So it's yeah, that's worth worth a uh, yeah. listen. You know, absolutely, that's a good name. Quirk, wasn't it called yes. Quirkus? That, that album. Yeah, yes, Quirkus. So if you're going to yeah, one, so for folks, yeah. that's Q U E R C U S. Before you Google that's it right, with a yeah. K and a W or something. Uh, yeah, it's so, an amazing yeah. album. It really is. You mentioned. Tina being sort of under the radar and the idea of awards and rewards and recognition is something that can often change perception of that. 
you were recently awarded a British Empire Medal for services to music, which is a really big deal. What do accolades like this mean to you in general or specifically at this sort of point in time? Well, well, it actually meant a lot, you know. I mean, it's it was a bit of a funny one because the Queen's Award, the, the, the word empire is in there, you know, which is British Empire Medal. But it actually, you know, I, I talked to a lot of friends because some people, I mean, I wouldn't have turned it down, but, you know, people do because of those kind of connotations. But um, Cleveland Watkiss, great, um, um, you know, we were just talking about the jazz. Jazz gets so little recognition in those kind of national awards um i was we kind of well i I just thought i would take a hit for the team you know in a way and um there's so much you know work and you know jazz gets so little support really in the big scheme of things compared to something like opera um and it it actually is it is lovely if somebody gives you a pat on the back i mean i'm not i'm not i'm not looking for it at all you know i'm out there doing it so it was i even phoned them up because i thought they'd um, got the wrong person (laughs) But um, but it was actually a lovely day, and I was I was amongst some amazing people. One woman who had been working with the homeless, and over COVID, she'd lost her legs and her arms. You know, it's all about your community and doing things um, to really better. You know, whether it's working with the, the local kids that have no shoes, which we do, <laughs> and then working with the, the rocket science kids at the Royal Academy and all the composition work and playing. So I I, I felt. I suppose proud that I, you know, bringing, uh, you know, just being useful in society as a musician, which I think, you know, we can be, can't we? You know, in terrible times or, you know, and I, I know where I am. You know, there's, a, there's we have a lovely book in our toilet called um, Music in Society by Vaughan Williams. It's an old sort of 1930s book, but it's it's kind of it's really interesting because it talks about the pyramid of music and you have your people like Keith Jarrett or whoever you love right at the top and how important those layers right down to the grassroots coalface teaching or um, you know the people that are out there um, making music in hospitals or for all sorts of things um, how important it is so I'm just happy I'm I'm out there yeah, being useful and hopefully trying to do something inspirational at the same time. But also, you know, I do a lot of work in publishing and uh, work in my local school because I think it's important. You know, so it was it was nice for that. It was about the community. So I felt very honoured. I'm going to the um, palace. We have to go to the garden party. So I'm going to be looking around, having a look at what it's like inside Buckingham Palace. <laughs> That's coming up. So. Should be a fun day. Please take some sneaky photos. Have you got a fascinator? I, I, um, <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, with short hair, I'm not sure if I'm a, a hat person, but um, we'll brush up. <laughs> when the day is done, turns his back against the sun, lifts his head, reads the message in the
I wouldn't say that he's depressed It's just there's no one Who knows how bad he feels On his horse Into the sunset He'd best be jazz studies you've done a tremendous amount of work though I mean broadly in, in jazz education you've helped devised syllabi for the Royal Schools of Music you've examined you've published music and books when you're teaching university students do you are you you're still at the Royal Academy in Guildhall yeah and Middlesex University I have a lecturing job there too I'm triply appreciative we could schedule this interview because it's not like Nikki's <laughs> calendar is sitting there empty and dormant. When you're teaching university students at any of these places or in general, what are the sort of cornerstones of your teaching philosophy, the most important things you think you need to impart to them? Well, it's it's finding out that what they want to do is one thing um, and teaching them how to go out in this world and learn themselves that's a big thing for me you know because it's I'm no apart from offering information and opening doors of course to things they, I mean a lot of do a lot of that you know of obviously opening doors to things they wouldn't have come across and but it's you it's kind of finding out because everybody's individual and you know it's it's that thing of trying to draw out the thing they want to do artistically in the end especially for the older ones you know and it's you know being quite student-led in some ways but I think that learning teaching them how to learn is a big thing because it's and you know surviving the, the peaks and troughs of an artistic life you know um it's it's tough isn't it sometimes you know but if you have little strategies and things to get you through and uh so I, I, and I do talk about being a musician and sometimes it's with some teachers I suppose it's just kind of chalk and talk and uh, info, but. Um, it's the whole thing, isn't it? Surviving being a, um, a creative person. And if we come full circle to the fact that it is Mother's Day in the <laughs> UK today, and that you have uh, you have multiple children, but <laughs> one of them, your daughter Immy, is a vocalist and is currently a jazz student um, at the Royal Academy, and also your partner Pete Churchill is also a lecturer and a pianist and a vocalist and an amazing songwriter uh, and composer in his own right. What is it like for you having a child who has felt the pull towards being a jazz musician and wanting to learn that? What are your dinner table conversations like, Nikki? <laughs> well, no, well, to be honest, we were just so worried about um, killing it for her, being who we are, or, you know, just musicians. So, and we have another, the, our eldest son, uh, my stepson, 
he's 30 now and and same thing you know he's a musician too he's in um nashville he's signed to warner as a song amazing yeah he yeah. just wrote something for michael Bublé. he did yeah and, let's uh, do a little plug <laughs> yeah for the latest album and uh keith urban and um, uh, all sorts of people but he's having a great time but but yeah with imogen um yeah we didn't we didn't send her to music, you know, hot housing music schools at all. And I mean, obviously she came with us to summer schools and, you know, in a buggy when she was very little. And, um, you know, we traveled to Australia to teach teachers. She, she came with us. And so she's had an amazing um, experience traveling, which has been, I would, which is a bit amazing for any kid, isn't it? Whether you're musicians or not. And, and she's not afraid of travel, which is great. But yeah, we were really frightened about just it being too much um because you often see kids that have started so young and then they're burnt out aren't they by the time they're mid-20s so she was by the time she got to 17 18 um you know they had a nice music department i did a little bit of teaching i ran a steely dan band and a, a little big bat uh you know kind of thing there but um but she wasn't really with like-minded kids there was a few really they're fantastic classical musicians there but um the head of the royal academy jazz course nick smart is an old friend and he said you know they know she's called him uncle nick you know and um he said why don't you go on the national youth jazz collective summer course it was her last year and she was going to go off and do english lit because she loves words and and so she did and it, it was like wow this is what i want to do you know meeting like-minded kids so so it's great she's you know she's in she had the horrible year of the first year of covid um where they were just locked in their rooms really you know they did because it's quite a small course they did as much as they could they did pretty well but um it wasn't a first year experience you know so she's in a second year now and she's absolutely loving it so it's it feels quite fresh and london's great and um it's a really friendly course and you know they're getting so many experiences dave holland's in a lot um all these people and um Craig Table was in last week and, you know, all sorts of people coming through and uh, she's the only singer, unfortunately, on the course. <laughs> so she's um, having to sing giant steps without piano, bass and drums, you know, outlining changes and all this. But but she wants to be able to write for big band and conduct. So she, so it's, gonna, it's all good for her musicianship. I'd say she's probably in even better standing because I think most vocalists could probably do with a bit of being thrown into a less of a sort of vocal padded buffered stream um i wish i was forced to sing giant steps without bass and drums would have been good for my pitching so blooming hard isn't it? <laughs> yeah but if anyone can do it I, my money is on Emmy. so well, there you go. <laughs> he's striding out but yes it's, it's, it's great so it's a funny one isn't it being if you have parents mm. i know for pete my um husband his parents were quite famous classical musicians and he just wanted to go left not not have anything to do with it so we were very aware of that so what is coming up next are there any recordings that we can keep a lookout for uh yes i mean i think there may be a big band well there's um there's been talk i've had a label um been in touch about big band recording so <laughs> right uh, get something out there um and something which I'm, I'm not allowed to actually say about, but it's um it's um a thing with Norma and somebody else, but and some vocal things. So that's coming out, but we're not allowed to <laughs> say what it is yet. But it's um that that's already kind of half been recorded, so that's good. 
maybe a tri another trio album. Um, it's been a long time since the, the last one. So it's, um, yeah, just kind of those three to, for now. And uh, and you're getting back to live gigs as well. Oh, yeah, we're already, yeah, done quite a lot. Yeah, and, and uh, Soho is buzzing in London. You know, it's it's absolutely rammed. I mean, it's I know COVID is um, it's still kind of prevalent but um, people are living with it and getting on. So let's just hope we can get back together, you know, with people. I mean, it's, it's really profound, isn't it? How, how you feel. I mean, just doing the Big Bang gig with finally getting there. It was really amazing to have a full house, be able to make music, sit together, sit close together to be able to hear. And um, so, yes, yeah, I mean, it's looking better here anyway. I don't know about you, but in New York. Is it, how's it there? Yeah, well, I'm in Toronto. Um, oh, yeah, of course you are, yeah. yeah. No, no, yeah. no one can keep track, not even my mother. <laughs> York have been in touch in, in Canada to come, Pete and I, to come and do, um, um, you know, artists in residence maybe next year. And um, and actually Mike Murley, you know Mike? Yeah, um, from Toronto. Um, we're on tour in Denmark with um, Norma and Percy Persglove, who's a great trumpet player, and some uh, two Swedish musicians playing Kenny's music. So that's coming up as well, quite quite soon, end of April. Okay, well, that's brilliant because this basically means that folks who are listening to this who are in the UK will have opportunity to see you. Folks who are in Denmark uh, and possibly elsewhere in Europe can come and see you. Hamburg, and across, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Hamburg, there we go. Yeah. Uh, and of course, you'll be able to find all these dates on Nikki's website and I will post the link in the show notes. And I'm going to cross fingers that you and Pete... Uh, yeah, find your way to Toronto next yeah. year. That would be fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. No, we want to, because actually Pete's from Canada, so we, we've got to do our Canada trip, so the opportunity. <laughs> Very important, the maple syrup awaits you. That's it, yeah. <laughs> Nikki, thank you so much for being on the podcast and just sharing all this fantastic insight and your music which people will have heard throughout this episode with listeners no it's been a pleasure it's been lovely to speak to you again really lovely thank you to today's guest on the jazz session British pianist Nikki Isles as usual I will make a note in the show notes for this episode of all tracks that were played and any links or names that were mentioned 
A huge thank you to the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music of this show. You're welcome to follow The Jazz Session on Twitter at Jazz Sesh and on Facebook and Instagram at The Jazz Session. There's also a YouTube page to which you can subscribe if you want to watch video excerpts of my conversations with The Jazz Session's guests. A huge thank you to the patrons over at thejazzsession.com slash join. Head there today if you want to become a Patreon member. And thank you to the listeners for tuning in and to any support that you may shower upon this show, whether it's telling a friend, family or four-legged pal about how much you enjoy these conversations. My name's Nikki Schrera and I will see you next week for another conversation with an astounding jazz musician about their music and their process here on The Jazz Session.